Tonight I'd like to talk about the model of the six sense doors, which is a core component to Buddhist psychology, and also developing concentration or samadhi with body awareness. So I was uh, heartened to see how many people were honest in raising their hands the other day when it came to how many people had distracting thoughts, how many people had some restlessness energy, how many people were sleepy. And so these are the habits that take over our minds in daily life. And we don't really notice them because we're in the stimulating flow of daily life. And we actually come into a retreat. Uh, Many people need many days, if not uh, many weeks, to let their uh, nervous systems calm down from how much stimulation there is in daily life. And so the first couple of days can be disheartening because we come to sit and as people mentioned, we're motivated not like, boy, I can't wait for those, the beginning of the retreat. We idealize it, but like, yeah, I hope the retreat is just like the first or second day for the whole month. (laughs) Because we're actually getting uh, a taste of what what we've done to ourselves in daily life. Now, uh, I'm expecting that you are all good people. You all have somewhat of a practice. You're not the, the craziest people out there. Uh, and yet, look at your mind uh, of what it's been like. And not to get too hard on you, because everybody raised their hands. Even the teachers raised their hands. That's what we're actually doing to our minds. That's a... Um, That's a look under the hood and looking at your actual mind and what type of energies you've been stirring. But on top of that, we have daily lives, which are rewarding and engaging, and uh, we're doing our daily lives. We actually don't notice the type of habits that we're training into ourselves with that much stimulation. And so the first several days... Uh, you might have walked in feeling like a fairly uh, coherent person. And then you sit, and all of a sudden, you can see this blender worrying and worrying and worrying. And it can be disheartening. It's like, oh my God, I came here calm, but I'm actually experiencing a mind that won't be present, a mind that uh, won't be directed, a mind that has a mind of its own. And what you're actually witnessing is what you've done, what we've all done to our minds in daily life. And that's one of the most amazing things about an intensive retreat is that the first couple of days you can taste that and it actually, it's either disheartening or very motivating that I can't, I don't want this to be how my mind works. And if you can stay with it long enough, you start getting little uh, breaks from that overwhelm of the wandering mind, uh, the mind that goes unconscious and wanders, and then you wake up and can't even remember where you've been. I used to do a lot of canoeing 
uh, deep trek canoeing when I was young. So these metaphors popped in my mind. And we used to have to carry our canoes and all the gear from one lake to another. And uh, you'd be walking with all this gear on. And it's not made for backpacking. So these are short things, a lot of heavy weight, trying to get from one lake to another. And there comes a point where you're walking through the forest and it's very dense. And there comes a point where you can actually start to see uh, through the trees. But you're not at the lake yet, but you start to see through the trees. And there's this sense, like I'm not there yet, but I know a lake is coming near because the, the forest isn't as dense. So the overwhelm of our daily habits and what it's done to us uh, you'll start to get windows that open up. And uh, that starts to show you more of the promise of what these conditions can do for us when we're not stimulating ourselves over and over. So coming to this model of the six uh, sense doors, this is something that is hard to see in daily life because what we do in daily life is we let all our sense doors be stimulated. And then we try to very quickly, it's amazing how fast our minds are, take in all this stimulation, tell a story about it, and that story hopefully makes some sense about that's a sound. I remember that kind of being like a bird. Okay, that's a bird. That's a car. This is what I see. This is what I feel. And you're constantly getting stimulated by these uh, six ways of knowing your environment. And most of us are not uh, collected enough to go through that much data and not be swirled by it. So what our minds do is they take these overall snapshots and stay with a simple story, a simplified story, that's actually very functional in daily life because there's so much stimulation, but it means that we live much closer to our conceptual map of how the world is and how we are, even though we think we're freshly engaging uh, the world around us. We're actually just taking a tiny bit of novel data in and trying to work with the novel data. And anything that looks familiar, we refer back to this map we have. <clears throat> When I was young, I was very ambitious about mindfulness meditation. And I invited my father to a 14-day meditation retreat. And he said, yes. And I was like, ah, got him. <laughs> and I realized I was going to be on that retreat. <laughs> and I thought, oh my god, what have I done? Like, what if he doesn't like it? Or what if, what if it's intense for him? Or what if this becomes a split between us? Like, oh, I hadn't really considered the actual out, the reality of what I had um, welcomed. And about four days in, when my mind started to relax and I could actually make contact with my senses, when I was like, oh, I'm actually seeing things fresh without this cognitive map that I'm referring to, that was very refreshing. And then my dad was sitting a little bit in front of me where I could uh, see him. And then this insight happened where I was like, okay, I see him visually but I'm seeing him fresh 
visually. So what does that mean? I did all the other decades of my life. And it's like, oh, I just take in the sort of, there's my dad. And I kind of have him mapped out. And he's kind of like my most comfortable shoe. So I put that feeling of my dad on and he behaves kind of like he should. So it's very cozy. And as long as he doesn't deviate from my comfort of him, we both enjoy that. He's mapped me out too. When I went on the retreat, I could see that I had actually mapped him out so well that nothing he did challenged the map I have of him. And so in dropping this map of him, there was a moment where I was disoriented and then there was this invitation, who is this being? And why had I limited him so much to this comfortable map? So that's what we're, we're doing. And it's, it's functional. So this is what not happy beings do, but functional beings do, is they map out the world. And if it's familiar enough, you unconsciously refer to this map of how things should be. That means you only have to really process uh, a little bit of novel data every day. So these are two patterns that we come into when we come into retreat, is our mind doesn't actually trust or stay with one, one direct experience at a time. It bounces around between them, as it does in daily life, trying to incorporate all this stimulating uh, information. And then it takes a picture to simplify it and says, this is what's happening. Oh, I know this one. This is familiar. And then we can rest in that concept of what's happening. And even though every day is new and fresh and could be stimulating and could be vivid, if we don't have enough togetherness to flow through that much intimacy with life, we step back one level and just deal with this map, this unconscious way that we map the world. So our path and the practice is to understand that we have these six modes of of feeling the world, six modes where our attention is drawn. There's the five senses that we're all familiar with. So hearing and seeing, smelling and tasting, all that we feel in our bodies. And then there is the, our mental experiences. And like um, the old game Frogger, I'm not sure how many of you people played video games uh, and played this particular one. It's a particular time in our culture when Frogger was really popular. But this frog has to jump around in traffic and make it from one side to the other. Our minds are jumping around, taking in all this uh, sense data and trying to make it through all that. That's why our minds are so patterned to be scattered. And it's also why we get disoriented when we actually come to feel the world more. It is actually going to thaw and defrost and take apart the simplification that we have, the simplified concepts and unconscious maps we have of the world. But that's where learning can happen. That's where novel insight can happen. So we actually want to come to these sense doors. We want to understand the sense doors. 
we want to be more sensitive at our sense doors so that we can actually work with direct contact with the world and not this unconscious conceptual perception that we refer to. The Buddha talked about this when he was talking about the importance of mindfulness of the body when relating to the six sense doors. He said, a person who has worldly patterns and has these six sense doors, it's a lot like taking six wild animals from very different ecosystems tying them together, tying them all to, a, to a, uh, one knot, and then letting go. And they all fight each other, trying to get where they're comfortable. So he says, you know, at his time, if you had a snake and a co- crocodile, a bird, a dog, a monkey, and a jackal, and you tied them all by a leash and then tied those all to a single knot and let go, they wouldn't want to be around each other And they would all instinctively head where they felt most comfortable. The bird would try to fly to the sky, the monkey to the forest, the dog back to the village, the crocodile to the swamp, the snake to some uh, den. And the jackal, they say, heads to the crematorium. (laughs) I'm like, whew. (laughs) Wasn't expecting that one. But... uh, they have their nature and they're headed to where they want. And so there's this tug of war between these six untamed uh, intuitions by these six different animals. And whichever one tires first gets dragged by the other ones. And whichever one has the strongest motivation ends up dragging the others where it wants to go. So if hearing is unsatisfied by what's happening, it will drag you where hearing wants to go. And if seeing is unsatisfying where it is, or if it sees something it wants, it will push us towards what we want through seeing. And so uh, unrestrained, our mind has these impulses and they can be deep and unconscious impulses towards what's pleasant or comfortable, away from what's unpleasant. And they don't all agree. They don't all agree on what, uh, what would be conducive for their happiness. The Buddha then said in this sutta, which is, uh, I should have said at the beginning, it's Samyutta Nikaya 35.247, called the six animals. The Buddha said we use mindfulness of the body to take those six wild animals and not let them compete to each other, but let them be tied to a central post. And even though they want to go compulsively where they want to go, after a while they're not uh, pulling you because there's a central post. And so then they relax and they uh, learn to live by the post. So you tie these six animals, they're not competing to each other, they're competing with a post. And the more we have mindfulness of our bodies, the more we have the central pillar 
and we're not whipped around by these six sense doors, what they like and what they don't like. We actually have a central reference point. When we learn to rest in the body, which may not be where we all instinctively would want to go, we would want to take refuge in our bodies. With some practice, we kind of know that that's helpful. But when left to our daily life choices, the body is usually not high. It's like, I'm going to wake up and I got plans, but not all my plans are to be embodied. My embodiment is sort of uh, something I have to train in because when I let myself go back to daily life, I want to see friends, there are responsibilities I have to do, you know, errands I have to do. So being embodied is often not my ego's first choice. But on retreat, we can see, even though it's not our, our egoic inclination, we can see what happens when we dedicate ourselves to the body. And that... <clears throat> that begins to at first challenge these habits of being stimulated by these six sense doors and all the chaos that brings. And it begins to lend a kind of central reference point. And then these six sense doors are not explored by an agitated mind. They're not explored by a fragmented attention. So by dedicating ourselves to the central column of the body, the mind can collect, the mind can rest. There's some very important transformation that happens there. And then when you go to hear a sound, when you go to taste something, when you see something, you receive it beautifully through a heart that's healed, a heart that's more collected. And so then you can actually go back into this sixth sense door feast of life but not in a way that scatters and fragments and feeds this agitation. So we come to the body and then we come back up to these six sense doors with a commitment that our body is still central to how we're engaging the world. And so many beautiful things start to grow from there, which is why mindfulness of the body is so central to our practice. So coming into practical advice, um, thinking again about this word samadhi that gets translated as concentration. So there's mindfulness and there's concentration. Um, I would like to, to teach you and help you be more familiar with the word samadhi because the English word concentration is a little bit too aggressive for what, how samadhi actually blooms, how samadhi actually grows. So in daily life, we know concentration by fixating our attention and by using a little bit of willpower and then we can stay with something and not be distracted. That doesn't develop into great samadhi if it's something that you're fixating with willpower. And so to create a samadhi takes relaxation. It takes uh, often not enjoying the process of scattered agitation. 
So just by being here in this beautiful environment that has low stimulation, your mind is naturally going to collect itself. So you don't actually, it's not all up to your willpower that samadhi will collect over these days and weeks. You're in a conducive environment for this collection to happen. Samadhi is, it's got several flavors when it comes together and when it's a, it's a, a beautiful healing of your heart as opposed to a willful fixation of your attention. When samadhi ripens, I, there is a type of collectedness where you're not running two things in your mind. You're not attending this, but having all these background things scattering and pulling on your attention. So you've had natural samadhi in your life if you've ever walked on a beach and found a beautiful rock. Being on the beach does a lot of the work for you because it's beautiful and you're relaxing. And then the beauty of the rock pulls your attention in. And for a moment you're like, oh my God, I'm totally going to keep this. It's beautiful. I'm going to take it home. I'm going to put it on my altar. And then it dries and you're like, meh. But for a moment, a little wet rock holds your whole attention and you feel like you stumbled across treasure. So if you saw that same rock on a sidewalk where you had to watch out for people and you're running errands, you hardly would notice it. So you think it's all the rock, but it's actually the quality of being on the beach, relaxing some, being open to the environment, and then letting something beautiful draw your attention in. So there's a wholeness of attention. There, in the samadhi we're trying to cultivate, there is a sense of well-being. And that's where the word concentration really falls flat. In concentrated states, you might not feel content. You know, if you're working on something, you're concentrating, who, being content or not is not a part of our English word concentration, but it is a part of samadhi. So we're collecting ourselves, we're calming ourselves, making our attention whole, welcoming our attention to be whole. But then samadhi starts to gain momentum when you feel content and well. Now, some of us feel content and well when we're in very stimulated circumstances. If you start to feel content and well in calm circumstances, chances are it's because your heart and mind are not so agitated. So in that uh, calming down of your heart, the collecting of your attention, taking a deep breath, relaxing, appreciating the present moment, coming to your breath. And if you find a breath actually content-making, just one breath at a time, you might think for the moment it's the breath. It's like, ah, oh, I can't believe this was hard to watch. It's right there in my torso. It feels so good to be with my breath. It's actually a statement about the quality of heart and mind you have that a breath can be satisfying. So the nice thing about the breath is that if you're with it, it probably means that your heart and mind have collected, have settled, and that there's a natural uh, willingness to be with something simple. That's why the breath is 
the breath and the body can be good for supporting wholeness of attention. The breath and the body can be challenging because our body also experiences pain and agitation. But approached in the right way, our breath and body can be very supportive for this collectedness. And then, <clears throat> so what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is the intimacy with the present moment. And intimate enough, and I'm using that word uh, to mean that you actually can be aware of what's happening while it's happening. So mindfulness while eating, you're actually aware of the textures of the food, the, the flavors of the food. You also catch your mind choosing what it wants to eat. And uh, you can see a lot in the stream of the present when there's mindfulness. So you can have mindfulness without concentration, which is mindfulness, but everything feels kind of fragmented and spinning. It's hard for mindfulness to be in an unconcentrated mind because there's just so much chaotic, uh, so many chaotic things happening or kind of a dull gray uh, sleepiness on top of the mind. And it's hard to be intimate with that. But as Tuari invited us, you can bring mindfulness into those states uh, and it's challenging, but that's part of our practice. As we welcome this collectedness, this relaxation and practice in a way where we can be content with simple things, then we find that mindfulness of the present is mindful of something that's enjoyable. So <clears throat> it's funny that James uh, mentioned this retreat in 1984. This teacher came over and he was a, a warrior attitude monastic and had a very big impact on our Western insight tradition. And I came as a novel practitioner in 1989. So everybody was really kind of uh, uh, frothed up by this. It's like, ah, just, you got to work really hard and see things and get into the corner of right the center of the pain. And I was like, okay, I guess this is normal. <laughs> but it was a phase of a type of very assertive practice. And then other chapters happen and developments happen in our Western insight. But <clears throat> it was surprisingly long before I was taught that practice could be enjoyable, not as some type of reward down the road for the hard puritanical sacrifices I made early on, <laughs> but actually uh, cultivating a relationship to ple pleasure that wasn't attached or striving, but just can you practice in a contented way could be actually the flavor of practice. So it was, <clears throat> I still find it shocking because there are actually places in the Buddha's teachings where the joy of practice and practicing in a way that brings in well-being is, is f uh, a foundation to developing mindfulness and to developing samadhi. So to practice in a way that helps moment-by-moment -moment experience tastes like happy contentment. That's difficult when 
uh, pain does visit and the body is agitated. So it's not just something you can choose. But I was practicing in a way where I actually made it difficult for contentment to come. And when contentment came, there was this old puritanical sense that that was lazy practice. Like if I was content, obviously I could try harder. And so when contentment came, I was like, okay, this is nice, but what I really want to report is just the way I got it, the way I saw, the way I challenged myself, the pain that I could describe in detail. But contentment, I know the teachers are going to say, like, you're slacking. So I had uh, this old North American puritanical anxiety about ease and contentment. And there were teachings, and it was a chapter that came through our practice, where there was a, um, about seven or eight years where there was also suspicion of joy and contentment. And James here has done a lot to really welcome back in the primalcy of joy and contentment as being how we practice. So one time the Buddha was talking about uh, mindfulness of breathing and there had been uh, a lot of agitation in the community. So he gathered everybody together and he said, practitioners, when this samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is peaceful and sublime, a delicious, pleasant meditation. It disperses and settles unskillful qualities on the spot whenever they arise. Just as in the last month of the summer, when the dust and the dirt is stirred up, a large sudden storm disperses and settles it on the spot. So just that image uh, in a country like India, the end of the summer is about May, end of May, beginning of June, And it hasn't rained since October, the previous year. And it cools off in the winter, and then it gets incredibly hot. But before the monsoons come, it is like living inside an oven. You open an oven, you get that blast. It's so hot and dry. And then it's really dusty, because all the the earth starts to break apart and gets dusty as wagons go by. And and so you, you really pray for that first rain. And now people who live on the West Coast or in the Western states here know about the fire season and know about the way that uh, the air is hard to breathe and the danger to our forests and to people and animals. And so we also have this sense of the dry season being really dangerous and how much everybody prays for that first rain, that first fall rain that soaks, not just a little bit of misting rain, I've never seen Californians as grateful for a dousing rain. No really kind of (laughs) sun-addicted people having this pray for rain, pray for rain, pray for rain. And so we also are agitated. We have these agitated minds, agitated bodies. And we're trying to cool them off, but all of our daily life solutions usually stir us up. It's very hard to actually be in daily life and bring the type of rain that cools off our agitation. But that's 
the cultivation of mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of breathing. And he uses the word, the samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing, this collectedness, contentedness that comes, is like this rain that settles the heat, settles the dust, settles the dirt. And he said, in that same way, mindfulness of breathing settles our agitation, our inner agitation. And then he says in the second half, and how is it developed and cultivated? When a practitioner gone to the wilderness, gone to the rouge tree, or gone to an empty hut, so this is our empty hut, sits down cross-legged with their bodies straight and focuses mindfulness right there. Just mindful, they breathe in. Just mindful, they breathe out. Or mindfully, they're aware they're breathing in. Mindfully, they're aware they're breathing out. Then they practice like this. I'll breathe in, observing, letting go. I'll breathe out, observing, letting go. That is how this samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it is peaceful and sublime, a delicious, pleasant meditation. And it disperses and settles unskillful qualities on the spot whenever they arise. That's a, a great uh, a great simplification and clear pointing that mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, has these two qualities. I'm breathing in. That's all you have to do is breathe in and be aware I'm breathing in. And when you're breathing out, all you have to do is be aware that you're breathing out. And then this second line, I'll breathe in, letting go. I'll breathe out, letting go. And that's what we're cultivating is simplicity, presence, aware you're breathing in, aware you're breathing out. But it's not to accumulate something. You're not trying to accumulate samadhi. You're not trying to accumulate breaths. You're breathing in and breathing out in a way that encourages you to release, to let go, to relax. You could do this, and that's all your retreat is aimed at, and it would be a month really well spent, or two months really well spent. You could have done years of practice doing very complex meditations and tasting very far out things, and then come back to this and find it really rewarding and find that this actually furthers your practice. This is not just where we start. This is often where we return. And even as people get closer and closer to their states of freedom, what do you want to do with your freedom? A lot of what you want to do is rest and breathe so that in those times you can't only rest and breathe. You feel rested, you feel recharged, so that when you do engage the world, it's not from a fragmented place, a scattered place, a fatigued place. Mindful you're breathing in, mindful you're breathing out, and observe letting go. That's mindfulness of breathing. <clears throat> and uh, what's challenging sometimes is that our minds are agitated and all we have access to really is our, our conscious minds. 
But be, if you agitate yourself long enough, these agitations work into your unconscious mind. And so your unconscious mind, your conscious mind can be agitated by daily life. And then you go to calm yourself down and you calm what you have access to down. But it, there's a lot more momentum unconsciously of feeling agitated. Our bodies are like the most loyal pet you've ever had. And I have done a lot with, I live a lot with dogs and especially uh, work dogs. And they look at you with so much attention. So you go to throw a stick and you have their entire attention and they're looking for any type of signal that you've gone from about to throw the stick to where you're gonna throw the stick because that's when they'll start running. So they give you this incredible attention and they're reading you. So our bodies are reading us all the time. It's like, wow, you look really worried. Let's pump up some adrenaline. Let's get ready for the fight. And your body has no idea you're worried about something 20 years from now. Your body is like, let's get him. Oh my God, like that looks really tough. Are we running? Are we bracing? Are we fighting? How are we going to solve this? So that's how loyal your body is. It will go on every trip that you're going on. Very loyal. We're not as loyal to our bodies as our bodies are to us. They're running every anxiety. They're running, you know, you'll, like, your heart will open or melt or contract by things that happened 30 years ago, by fears you have that are 40 years from now. And they're running it all as if it's happening to them right now because they are right with you. So when you're agitated in daily life and then you take a breath and calm down, you've probably only calmed down your subjective Thing, but your back of your mind and your body take a lot longer to cool off because they got so worked up by how we got worked up. So as we're settling, often we'll feel these old imprints carried in the body. And there's this long thawing process where you come to sit down, your body's agitated, you don't add agitation to agitation, then it relaxes, then you settle a little bit. During that time, your body is running an old pattern. You don't react to it. Body then sees that you're not reacting. Your body calms down, back of your brain calms down, and then you get a more global sense of calmness. But you do have to pay some of the bill of what's been imprinted on your unconscious mind and in your body. This will slowly thaw over the days and weeks you're here because you're in a very conducive environment for these thawings of body patterns, of mental patterns. We actually only know the, the tip of the iceberg of what we're experiencing consciously, but there's a lot more to our mind and a lot more to our body than we have subjective access to. So a big part of our practice is cultivating calm and welcoming that and our bodies will respond to that. But we'll also, as we feel into our bodies, we'll feel into layers that we couldn't feel into daily life and we'll feel pain that our body's been holding for a long time 
pain around our shoulders, pain in our hips, pain in our jaws, anywhere we've held tension. Wrong view blames the body. Wrong view is upset with the body. Wrong view says, oh, I didn't get a good one. This body aches a lot. This body has been your best friend and it won't really leave you. <laughs> you can do a lot to your body and your body's in it for the long haul. Your body, your body could say, hey, you really have not treated me well. I think we need some time apart. <laughs> Try to get on without me, but you go do you. And I actually can't handle it anymore. I need time out. So your body goes with you, but, every, but it speaks up when it's at threshold of what it can handle. And that's usually, ah, you're getting in my way. Why can't you just keep going where I want to go? But you wouldn't treat anybody else like this. A friend gets a cold, friend's not feeling well, and you're like, you're not so fun to be around. It's like, oh, my, oh I'm sorry, you're not feeling well. So your body is an amazing animal. Your body is willing to host you. <laughs> and you got some good parts. You got some good qualities, but you're also a mixed bag. <laughs> and your body is still willing to host you. So right view will, unconscious daily view will go like, Okay, I'm streaming along, I like this, I'm feeling good about my practice. Ah, now my body's getting in the way. Now it's a little tired, now it's speaking to me. Do you have to speak right now? We're having such good practice. <laughs> or I, like, I liked you how you were two hours ago when you were like glowing. But now you got, you're tired, ah, you're getting in the way of my practice. Whose practice? <laughs> we let the body speak to us. And we become more and more loving of this animal. And we're willing to hear it speak to us. And if it's in pain, it's letting you know, wow, I'm not doing well today. I got hurt on that hike. Oh my God, I'm stuck with a thorn. Wow, that was really hot. So it's telling you if it's not okay. It's also telling you how it's been handled in the past. And it needs some time to catch up with where you are. So mindfulness of the body becomes an act of loving kindness and it becomes an act of reconnection to this amazing animal that society has sold you way short on what you've actually been given in a human body. And it's the sickness of advertising that wants to sell things that that's a worthy body Going from your body, going into your body, it has boundless, boundless worth and amazement. If you take, as James was saying, just, just the atoms in your body and you consider them, so these teeth, they're hard because of calcium. Calcium was made in an old star under incredible forces that blew up and then the calcium was dust along with everything else and collected. And then these cells formed and they learned to take calcium out of the environment and build teeth so that I can chew an apple. Like, 
how often am I that proud of my teeth? <laughs> and it's like, well, eh, they're not as white as they used to be. <laughs> like, no, no, no. Like, just contemplate your teeth and be satisfied. You got teeth. You got bones. You got nails. You got hair. You got skin. So there are other meditations where we see the limitations of the body, and that, is a, that, that also is a development of loving wisdom. But we don't spend enough time honoring and loving and listening to this animal. You get to be inside one of evolution's most amazing animals, and you get one. And you get to be inside of it, and you get to wiggle it, you get to move it, you get to feel temperatures through it, you get to have a home for your consciousness, and you get to be inside it, and you can improve that relationship. How do you do that? One, out of daily habit, we think that there are more interesting things. So that's on all of us. Your mind wanders because it's not impressed with breathing. It's not impressed with body sensations. They're not as intriguing as what the mind can conjure up in terms of visions and plans and memories. So we keep overlooking the body as something interesting. And that is a delusion. We come to a retreat, we get held in place, our minds would rather be elsewhere, then they relax, and then you feel your body a little bit more, and you're like, wow, that was really worth it. I'm actually more, I can feel my body, I can feel the senses of it, but now I can feel inside of it. And those pains and aches are thawing, and I'm knowing moments where my body's a really beautiful home base. That We'll never get free from having to feel pain, but that's another development of wisdom, that we don't hate the body because it feels pain. With enough development of samadhi, of this internal well-being, of collectedness, with a wise relationship to the body, we can even handle the pain that it feels. I've had um, an illness, actually, since I was a monk, and the illness is part of the reason I disrobed, and that was 22 years ago. So I've had an illness called chronic fatigue syndrome that came about uh, after a year of very intensive practice in Burma. So during that year of practice, I was sort of opening up to feel my body. I was opening up to respect my body. So I had a lot of, of sensation inside my body before I got ill. But it's it still was a little bit tinged, like a really good bread that just has a touch of mold on it. And you, it's basically good bread, but it, it is a little off. So I had a very respectful relationship with my body, but it was still harboring this sense that I was only having a respectful relationship with my body so that I could do mental things, so that I had a good home base but the real things that I was intrigued by was enlightenment or traveling or being somebody. 
And it was just, a, it, it, I get, hadn't gotten rid of it. It was low, but it still was tainting my relationship to my body. And then I got ill, and my body got so dysregulated, and I thought I had no more access to the Dharma as I knew it, because it had to be this body that was full of happiness and bliss and settled. But that illness forged a new relationship to my body that was much more respectful, that my body didn't have to be a a trick pony doing good things and producing uh, the things that my mind enjoyed. But through uh, having a long-term illness, to having a body that was dysregulated, to having a body that wasn't like I chose, exposed the way that that thinking was tormenting. And so for me not to be tormented, I had to lower my expectations to having an ill body and then actually start raising where I drew joy from. And it wasn't in a young body. It wasn't in a body that performed. It wasn't in a body that matched some expectations. It was actually a healthy relationship to my body that came because my illness wouldn't let me have an unhealthy relationship to my body. It was a very strange thing that the illness actually made me healthy in the reverence I have for this body and the language we have and the way we speak to each other and the commitment I have in a way that being healthy, I was trying to do as a monk, but I wasn't held accountable. So I could still harbor delusions about, yeah, I'll be awakened, I'll respect my body, but I'll also get some of this. And like, I don't see the cost. But it kept feeding the sense that I was happier with my body when it produced pleasure, when it was neutral, or when it just didn't bother me. Those were three good relationships. You'd be pleasant, not pleasant, be neutral. And if you can't be either, do it on your terms. I got things I want to do. That was my healthy mind, my healthy temple relating to the body. Being ill couldn't endure that. And there was a time of deconstructing the attachments to being a healthy person. The ways that that pulled me out of being able to commune with other healthy people. And then about two or three years into the illness, I realized I was holding my breath in the illness to get me back, to get the me back. And I was enduring my illness hoping I could turn it around. And about three years in, I just couldn't hold my breath any longer. And I said, that is not accessible, but this day is accessible. And a lot of the pain of my illness was my unconscious frustration that I was ill. But I didn't know that, so I blamed my body for the amount of illness it has. And when I improved my relationship to my body, a lot of that agitation, wishing it were different, came down and I found I actually could meet this beautiful animal on its terms 
going through a very hard illness if I didn't resent it for being ill. Dharma practice will get you there, but it doesn't force you to go there because you can keep on uh, indulging these bad relationships to your body, being disappointed in it because it doesn't look like ads, being resentful of it when it's struggling, when it has pain in it, feeling a sort of boredom with your body. We all do it. You're not any worse than anybody in the room. We all struggle with this. But, you know, what is one breath? One breath is taking oxygen that's all around us, taking it in, your lungs do this gas exchange, and then they spread the oxygen out through your body. And then they take the waste product, the carbon dioxide, they put it back and you breathe that out. And so one breath, if you think about it too much, then you're not actually with your breath, you're kind of up in concepts again. But why wouldn't it be a reverent place to be? So as the retreat deepens, you might find that listening to your body becomes more accessible. And then all the ways that your daily mind wants to entertain itself and problem solve becomes less compelling. And actually being an animal breathing and being invited into that experience, a human mind that gets to rest within an animal breathing and to know that from the inside is an incredible moment of personal self-intimacy. And it's a much better baseline to be humming at so that when you engage the world, that's where you rise from. I am a content being breathing. I am a content being, seeing, walking through the world, but my well-being is established here. And then I engage the world. And over here, people playing music and dancing, that's a great place to go dance. Somebody has fallen and needs help, that's a great place to serve from. How you engage the world when there's well-being inside of you helps that to be a place where you're resourced to engage the world from. And that's why this is ultimately not a pulling away from the world as an ultimate strategy to be happy. We are taking a retreat from the complex world to know more how to relate to ourselves wisely so that when we go back and engage with the world, we do that wisely. And we've come from being scattered outside of ourselves and then carrying stress of that scatteredness inside. Coming towards our breath, coming towards our body, acknowledgement that we have a body, being willing to be embodied. If you do that slowly and steadily, and you don't have any higher ambition than that for this time that you're here, it will be transformative. It will transform where you're looking for happiness and where you'll actually find it. The daily life of trying to find happiness through this scattered sixth sense door uh, agitation is like drinking salt water. You never actually find long-lasting happiness 
by being scattered between these six sense doors. But learning to rest and collect yourself and honor one breath at a time, that actually leads to a deeper happiness. And then you still get the party of the six sense doors, but you don't try to live in the party. You visit it. And I like visiting beautiful, stimulating places, but I don't try to concretize that. My body is where I live. Your body is where you live. And that's what you're cultivating as a foundation of mindfulness practice. And there is more layers to all of us that we get to explore as the days go by. But it is the foundation of mindfulness to improve your relationship to your body. And any way that you're doing that, patiently, gently, uh, returning after a really good fantasy, and you're like, ah, I was actually enjoying that, but I'll come back and feel my breath again. Even that will slowly improve your relationship to your body. But even more so, if you, if you can welcome some reverence for the body and what the body level experience is happening, what is the body level experience? It's the sensations of your body. It's appreciation of your body as it's holding something, as it's moving. It's feeling the sensations. It's being aware that you have a body. And it's reeling yourself back from these mind trips that are surfing time and place and all these very interesting things that have very little to do with reality. And then being willing to come back and honor this animal that you live in. That's mindfulness of the body, why it's uh, foundational and how to practice it. Appreciate the fact that you can feel temperature. Appreciate the fact that you can move your body through time and space. Appreciate your body and its postures. Appreciate your body. Care for it while you're here. Care for it while you sleep. Care for it as, as you sit here. Let your sitting practice be a body-loving practice, not a body-hating practice or a body-transcending practice. Your awakening will happen, and your body is going to awaken with you. It's not something you leave behind. So let's sit for a little bit and see if we can take some of anything that was inspiring for that or orienting from that. And let that put some gentle wind in our sails for this evening's practice. And again, as we access practice tomorrow, Welcome yourself to relax. Welcome yourself to be aware that you have this friend in the body, this companion. It's in this posture of sitting, standing, lying down,
and with quiet reverence, appreciate the experience of breathing in, of breathing out, and release, let go of what isn't breathing in and breathing out. Release what isn't awareness of your body. You can find it later. (laughs) 